Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am excited to be back on the air um, with my co-hosts after a long summer hiatus. Those co-hosts, of course, are Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, how are you doing? And, and more importantly, are you racking up some good frequent flyer miles? I, I am getting a fair number of frequent flyer miles. The downside is that they're all on different airlines. So, you know, uh, I might be taking like a, a trip around the block, you know, on a bunch of planes. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm the same way. I have never, I don't travel all that much, uh, not as much as you do. I have never made that decision, which is like, okay, I'm a Delta person and I'm going to put all the, I, I always just try to find the cheapest flight. And so it's unmanageable and I never really get that many miles. Um, but this is something we can talk about on our other podcast, uh, I, you know, travel, travel chat, whatever. Um, uh, and we are joined also by Sarah Bay Jung of, wait for it, York University in Toronto. Sarah, new job, new country new office i see how oh, are yes. you doing how's the transition um it's it's been you know uh overwhelming um you know new country new province new city new institution new job new colleagues um so you know i feel like a first year uh yeah. i am a first year but it's overall it's been great the the folks here are really wonderful i love the city of toronto and uh, it feels like a not terrible time to be in Canada right now. So I'm, I'm you know, uh, yeah. I yeah, I'm I'm and and you know, I love learning. Uh, it's a little bit like drinking from the fire hose at this moment. So I'll, sure. I may I may have to you know tap into Harvey's uh, experience and wisdom here. But overall, I'm 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 really pleased. It's it's a it's a great place for me. I, I, I'm sure, and um, it does seem like a good person to you. You seem, in my mind, like a Canadian person in, in the good ways. You're, you're nice, you're considerate. Um, um, I don't know any other stereotypes of Canadians other than they're, not, they're nice. Um, but all good things in my mind. Well, I, I, I must have to, I have to say, you know, being a sports fan, there are, there are probably few moments in recent history that are better, right? I mean, I arrive in town and promptly the, the, the Raptors win the NBA world title, you know, championship title. Um, I got to watch Bianca and Jescu like, you know, win over the weekend, which is really exciting for us here in the greater Toronto area. So, I mean, it's, it's been really fun. This is great. I'm excited to build um, international rivalry into our podcast banter, um, <laughs> though now that the podcast is hosted by two deans and a department chair, we do have to work on our uh, relatability, as the undergrad students would say. Um, so we should think about ways to make ourselves more relatable to our to our listeners. Um, uh, or really just manage the difficulty of scheduling and <laughs> um, figuring out how to how to keep recording on a regular basis. Um, at any rate, great to see you guys. Let's dive right into it. On the podcast um, this edition, 
We have three exciting topics. We read Rebecca Castleman's article, An Acquaintance with Religion, Pluralizing Knowledge, and Gertrude Stein's Dr. Faustus Lights the Lights, uh, which is an article in the new edition of Modern Drama. Um, We also wanted to make time to talk about the uh, perspectives on the job market in academic theater and performance. Um, Over the summer, uh, Noe Montez posted um, another sort of update on his ongoing statistical research about the job market market in TAPS. Um, There is also a new edition of Theater Topics um, uh, edited by Professor Montez dedicated to the state of graduate education. We looked at that um, and we wanted to offer some advice to to, uh, job seekers from our own point of view. Hopefully we're not too out of touch, um, uh, but we wanted to meditate on what um, job, uh, job seekers in this market might do. Um, Finally, we wanted to talk about ATHA 2019 which just happened, um, really happened a month ago in Orlando, Florida, um, uh, on the topic of scene changes. We, are, we were trying to figure out who from ATHA could give us a dispatch, and oh my God, immediate past president Harvey Young is on the podcast, so um, he could tell us a bit about ATHA. Before we get into those topics, we have some news items to round up. Um, This is something that we neglected to mention on the last edition of the podcast, but um, Alex Ripp, um, an on-tap friend of the podcast, um, has taken a new job as director of the Five College Dance Program at Amherst. Congratulations to um, Dr. Ripp. Stanton Garner, this is in the new edition of Theater Survey. Stanton Garner wrote an 11-page review of the Bloomsbury Cultural History of Theater uh, uh, multi-volume set. This is, as I said, in the new edition of Theater Survey. It's worth a read. Uh, We mentioned this partly because um, uh, Sarah and I both contributed to this massive project, and we we dedicated a a podcast segment to it a couple of years ago when it came out. Um, Listeners might be interested to to learn more about that review. It's a a good review in in multiple senses, um, and I think Stanton Garner should be thanked for undertaking this really big job of reading reading all six of those books and and coming up with some analysis of them to share um i wanted to add this into the news roundup it's uh, it's a it's a sad um uh story but i wanted to mark the passing of jessica burson um in august we talked about her book the naked result which co-won the atha outstanding book award um in 2017 we talked about that book on episode 16 of this podcast um it's a terrific book she was a fabulous scholar um i didn't know her personally but um learning about her and reading her research i learned about her um her struggle with cancer and she passed away in august and then and I felt that um, we should just mention that on the podcast. Um, um, what other things can we talk about? Aster's coming up. Um, Aster's going to be in Arlington in November. We've got other conferences coming up. I don't know. Sarah, Harvey, what's on your mind? What, what should um, listeners to the podcast be looking ahead to? Well, there's the American Studies Association uh, meeting that's in Hawaii. Um, so that's uh, worth pursuing not only because it's Hawaii, but also uh, ASA has... Uh, uh, really taken on and expanded its engagement with theater and performance studies over the last five or six years. So uh, yes. I think people who listen to this podcast, you know, would actually find a community um, of like-minded folks who you know want high-level scholarship, but also sunshine and sand. Yes, as as, a, as one of the co-chairs planning the Astro Conference, I have to say, 
you, everyone should go to to ASTR. You can't go to both ASA and ASTR, um, but obviously there's a it's a it's a it's a big and exciting community for a lot of theater performance scholars. So um, no grudges, no grudges if you go to ASA instead of Aster this year. But they're both coming up. All right, let's uh, dive into our first topic. Um, in the new edition of Modern Drama, um, Rebecca Castleman has an article entitled An Acquaintance with Religion, Pluralizing Knowledge, and Gertrude Stein's Dr. Faustus Lights the Lights. Um, it's a fabulous look at that um, uh, libretto, 1938 libretto, um, piece by Stein, and she looks at the, she reads the play through the lens of William James's philosophy. Um, we have a, a, a resident scholar with some expertise on Gertrude Stein. Um, Sarah, did you want to start us off with your reactions to this article? Sure. Well, I, I mean, first, it, it's been a, a while since I've had the chance to kind of go back and 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 think and read deeply about Stein. Um, so I really, I really appreciated it, and I, I, I really like the way uh, Rebecca Castleman pulls together a lot of threads that get taken up with Stein um, uh, frequently. So her sort of uh, proximity to religion and religious imagery and iconography, as well as, you know, she was a, a student of William James um, at at Radcliffe, um, you know, before departing for Johns Hopkins Medical School and then later Paris. So, um, you know, but the, but the way that, that Castleman puts them together uh, as a way of understanding a kind of different engagement or meaning in this term landscape and landscape plays, I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, this is, a, this is probably my favorite Stein play. Um, and, and I think it's one that, that I've over the years found to be among the, mo the more readable and the more teachable. So it's always great to have another critical commentary on it to, to bring into the classroom and, and to help students kind of reckon with uh, the weirdnesses of Stein's text. Um, I think one of the things that really struck me or I found the most compelling in, in the article um, is precisely around these terms of engagement and and the way that Castleman deploys the concept of acquaintance, and she does this in a in a number of different places and 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 with a, a few different valences throughout. So one is is the notion that um, that plays and theater uh, are are situations of acquaintance, that um, that religion. Uh, both as a kind of embodied activity, but also as a kind of conceptual um, framework, um, is a site is a site of acquaintance and, and proximity and, and introduction. And then she looks at at that in in terms of the landscape and and really turn and kind of moves away from uh, where a lot of scholars, uh, I think myself included, situate Stein in the landscape, right? Which is kind of um, something to observe or something that has a certain level of stillness or a lot of people kind of connect it back to Stein's interest in various forms of, of, of modern art and, 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 um, and modes of representation in, in, in modernism and really thinks about the, the landscape as a site that one um, interacts with, approaches, uh, imagines oneself within, which is I think a, a really interesting and then, and then the ways in which religion offers us a similar kind of kind of notion there. And then she kind of deploys it out through all the different ways in which the characters of, of this play do that in, in different ways. And so she gives a, 
an original reading, to my knowledge, of the the ballet of lights, um, the way in which we might conceptualize Marguerite Ida and Helena Annabelle, which is a uh, a single character with four names um, and a conjunctive. Uh, so I, I just I found it it it's it, it some really original thinking and 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 great um, kind of close reading work in in Stein's text as well as I you know I call me kooky but I always find Stein fun like I just I I always <laughs> I mean I read her you know I don't read a lot of it for fun anymore but I find that when I get like stuck on whatever you know kind of it, uh, other kinds of writing like I you know I do a lot of administrative writing and reports and things like that um I, I will go back and look at Stein and 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 and, and other kinds of you know modernist poetry because I find it so invigorating to see language treated in such a, a a different and 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 less utilitarian context and so I, I i really appreciated castleman's argument here and her attention as well as the opportunity to to go back to to go back to stein yeah well there's a lot to appreciate in there harvey harvey Sarah has set the table with a lot of different things we could pick up. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about your reaction, and, and I can follow up on some of Sarah's comments as well. Yeah, absolutely. I am probably the opposite <laughs> of, Sarah, <laughs> of Sarah in this case, in which um, I, I will readily admit that uh, you know Stein's writing uh, is... Um, is, is of a style that I, I've appreciated from a distance, but I've also remained at a distance um, and it's just you know you know, one only has a limited amount of things and you know you can read in a certain amount of time and uh, and I never sort of ran toward Gertrude Stein I, I would say that uh, <laughs> oh you outlier you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I you know. and uh, but what I really appreciate about Rebecca Castleman's uh, article here uh, and, and this is coming from a person who has, has not actually previously read or seen a production of this uh, piece uh, is how um, you know what Castleman does is she in, invokes or applies what I think of as a form of sort of literary criticism, um, which people often think of as a, a critique or a bad thing to say, but I think it's actually really important and useful and needed in, in our world these days. Um, in where she takes a person like me, uh, who is not a um, uh, an active advocate of the work of uh, Stein, or at least not a uh, you know, first in line to kind of camp out, I would say, uh, you know, for performance. And, you know, what she does is she slowly and methodically and quite carefully sort of takes you through the, um, the origins, um, you know, of, of, of her Faust uh, story. Uh, and then also sort of takes you through, you know, uh, act by act, um, you know, you know the, the development of characters. You know, so I felt as though I was experiencing, you know, for the first time, uh, this production, and I think that's what you know. Really good performance and literary criticism can do. It can, you know, bring alive to you, um, you know, a live, uh, a, a previously live and witnessed stage text, um, you know, and then also offer um, a critical engagement as well in terms of the way it in, treats religion and and um, you know perspectives in society. So that's what I thought was worthwhile. Yeah, I, I'm very much with you on that, um, Harvey. One of the things that the article gave rise to me, um, gave rise to in me, and I think this is a credit to it, is though I, like you, am not 
terribly familiar with with Gertrude Stein from reading or, or seeing productions. It's I think it's just a gap in my education that I never I never took a class in which one of her plays was assigned, and I haven't read deeply. For someone like me, it made me more interested in Stein. Um, it it gave me a point of access to where I felt like I could sit down with the play and really begin to uh, instead of being lost or intimidated by the kind of high modernist. Uh, formal experimentation and the and the um, I don't know I, I would say notorious but not quite notorious but the famous difficulty of Stein's texts in production or reading that I actually have things I have handholds now and I would I'm excited to read the play now um, I, I I thought in in that same way that it would be great to have. A, a senior seminar. Imagine this class, a one semester senior seminar for theater drama performance majors. And it's basically Faust and theatrical modernity. And you read Marlowe, Dr. Faustus, you read Goethe's Faust, at least part one. You read Stein, Dr. Faustus lights the lights, and you watch slash analyze slash read about the Worcester group, House Lights. And then you can take the, this enduring problem of modernity and knowledge and its cost in all of its different adumbrations you can you know walk students into engagements with really difficult texts but they all hold together you can get into modernism you know proper modernism post-modernity and all of it through the medium of theater and that's what this article made me want to do like like actually create an educa- a pedagogical experience for these students so um i'm totally with you harvey on my assessment of this though i think i'm more hospitable to Gertrude Stein even <laughs> than you are though I'm not knowledgeable do, do, um, do you want can, can I just this is like kind of off topic and I don't know if anyone will care but me but I I so love Gertrude Stein still yeah. that um when I came to York uh we have this amazing collection the Joan and Martin Goldfarb um, collection of modern art and and you can choose some works from it Uh, to hang in your office. And so I actually have over my desk, you can't see it on camera here, but I'll send a picture later, um, uh, the Andy Warhol piece uh, from uh, his series of significant Jews of the 20th century. I have his image of of Gertrude Stein looking over my desk. Um, um, I'm glad to know that detail about your office. I demand to see photographic um, representations of it. So so just out of curiosity, as, you, as we shift centuries, there's always a question of you know, like which artist, which playwrights you know, do we hope to carry with us for another hundred years? Uh, because there's lots of playwrights, there's lots of theater makers, and history only remembers and preserves you know, the legacy of a small number of them. So, so what is the strong argument or what is the um, yeah. justification that we should put out there you know, for why uh, universities and schools, and also uh, theater makers, should continue to engage with the work of Stein. Sarah. So, I mean, I don't know. That's always a, a, a difficult question because they, it seems like every time you make a choice like that, you're you're sort of pushing someone else off the off the list, right? Of this kind of finite. But, I mean, f- for me, uh, I, I have. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I got into Stein because someone many years ago said, no one understands Gertrude Stein. And I felt like the, the gauntlet of that was so, was so strong um, and that position. And what I find really amazing is that unlike other works that I feel, uh, perhaps over time have become more 
absorbed or have enjoyed greater circulation, right? Stein really is a kind of holdout of this incredibly, you know, difficult kind of separate space. And yet I always see so many connections to what's happening around us today. And I, and I really, and, and, and I've had great experiences teaching Gertrude Stein because the first time students encounter it, um, it's just, you know, it's totally baffling to them. And then as you start to take apart the text and really look at it word by word, sentence by sentence, image by image, idea by idea, and connect it to its context, right? There's such a tremendous sense of accomplishment of getting inside some of these texts and of and of understanding, like, and, and this is kind of, the, it goes back to the whole point of, of modernism, especially high modernism, right? The, the difficulty was the point, the, the engagement with things that were hard and slow and complicated and and multifaceted, th there is a real value in that. And so I think that particularly in a kind of fast-paced uh, world in which you know text is 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 flying around us all the time, there is a kind of inherent slowness um, that that Stein introduces. I feel the same way about Beckett, right? Um, uh, that there's a kind of challenge in this that that makes us consider it and consider the world and, and things around us in a very different way. And I think that's why she remains a kind of enduring touchstone for for generations of, of experimental artists of one kind or another and um, and why she's a kind of key key figure uh, for me in, in, in theater history. And and and, you know, I hope she always will be, you know. Indeed. Well said. And, well said. and, you know, along with Neil Simon, of course. Right. Neil Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, we're thinking about, like, playwrights going forward, right? Don't you think, like, Neil Simon, like Norman Rockwell is century. just going to live forever, right? <laughs> great American art of the 20th century. Oh, I don't know about Neil Simon. <laughs> um, I just want to, I want to uh, save us time for our other topics, but I do want to get back into this article um, with a little bit of a, 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 a more narrow focus. Um, I'll just say this, that I, I really appreciated this. Um, article as an example of uh, theater scholarship, which I think has been happening recently in, in um, a large degree, um, engaging seriously with the history of philosophy and the history of ideas. I'm thinking of um, just one example, uh, Theater and Evolution from Ibsen to, Beck, uh, to Beckett by Kirsten Shepard Barr. So I like, and, and I participate in this mode of scholarship myself, which is looking at the artifacts of theater history together with the history of philosophy, the history of ideas, reading them as part of one big phenomenon and, you know, doing both of those things. The trick is in that case, balancing how much sort of history of ideas and reading of philosophy inter and interpretation of the ideas you're doing along with the close readings and analysis and proper theater history um, uh, uh, of the of the plays. And so I feel like um, Castleman does a very good job of balancing this. You do learn about William James in some detail. Um, you certainly get good, close, and compelling readings of the play itself. I did, the, the, the article though did make me wish for a little bit more sort of mooring in um, the history of philosophy. So much relies in the article on the distinction between um, uh, knowledge of acquaintance and um, uh, knowledge about. And it you know, she does this masterful job of reading the religious images, but also a sort of gender dynamics and coming back to this distinction again and again. But I wanted to know more about what was in stake at stake in that and what the different, you know, a bit more about the different um, categories of post-enlightenment knowledge that are ostensibly identified with Faust, right? What facets of the sciences, what, um, 
what would have been at stake in Stein's engagement with this. Um, but nonetheless, just a fantastic, um, fantastic article and, and um, something we recommend to people teaching Stein or, or getting into Stein. Why don't we move on to our second topic? Um, uh, we have been on hiatus for a few months, and in back in July, on July 4th, Noe Montes posted on Facebook a, a sort of update of his ongoing research on the job market. Um, there is also in the new edition of Theater Topics um, an, an issue dedicated to the state of graduate education. Um, uh, we wanted to look at that. There, there have been other things sort of happening. I mean, it's, it's September, so the job listings for this year in our field are sort of appearing online. Um, there was an article recently in the Chronicle about um, Columbia's English department and its struggles with p placing PhDs. So we wanted to have a topic where we engage with some of these um, texts that have come out, some of this information, and, and try to further the conversation about the, the state of the field in that way. Um, I'll just say this. I, I, um, in, in Noe's update on Facebook, these are some key stats. And he updates this every year, has been updating this year. But he looks back over 10 years and he finds 749 PhDs in theater and performance studies that have been produced. And of that 749, 273 people are in tenure track jobs. 192 are working in contingent positions, though he'll be the first to note that that category includes a lot of different things, VAPs, lectureships, um, short-term postdocs, um, uh, other kinds of jobs. Um, 125 of those people are working outside of the academy. Um, 87 are defined as freelance artists or independent scholars. 56 are in university administrative positions, and 17 um, were unaccounted for, or in Noe's terms, uh, whereabouts unknown, which makes it sound like they might have been, I don't know, abducted by aliens or something like that. But um, that, probably is, that is a very well, funny phrase that he that he that he repeats well, a few times. I agree. It's how you introduce a new professional wrestler that no one's ever heard of from whereabouts unknown. It's from parts unknown. <laughs> Anyways, um, I love that. There's you know this in all in all. Uh, Honesty, though, this is a this is a dire situation and something that directors of graduate programs are paying attention to. Universities, especially the humanities departments, are looking at. Um, and one of the one of the takeaway points I read in the theater topics um, issue, the sort of headline article: "What Comes Next: Graduate Education and Contingent Labor in Theater Performance Studies," co-authored um, by quickly Jonathan Chambers, Eero Lane, uh, Kay Francis Leiter, Di Diana Lucer, Heather Nathan's, Elizabeth Osborne, Danielle Rosvalli, and Kristen Wright, um, summarizing a big survey that they did of people who've graduated in our field. And just a couple of takeaway points from this that I thought were interesting: there seems to be a consensus view that modifying PhD training to accommodate paths into non-faculty jobs is a good thing, um, but that perhaps people not have not figured out how to do it, how to do it effectively. But I thought it was striking that that seems to be a point of consensus, alt-ac training. Um, also another striking thing, something I hadn't thought of but is obvious, is that one of the negative effects of the job market dynamics we're seeing now is not just that people aren't finding tenure track jobs in the proportions that one would hope. But that while they're in these contingent positions, the field is suffering because less scholarship is being produced. Um, you don't have the incentives, you don't have the time, you don't have the research support in as great of uh, a 
uh, an amount when you're in a contentious job. So you have these highly trained scholars ready to make a f- contribution to the field, but they can't because they're spending multiple years in contingent positions. Um, and you know, these are just these are these are just points of takeaway that I thought were interesting. There's obviously a variety, there's controversy about what to do about this and, and different types of solutions that could be offered. But um, that's that's just a couple of takeaway points that I had from this. I'm not sure. What do you what are you guys thinking? What are you guys hearing um, about the job market? And uh, what were your takeaways from looking at these um, bits of research? Well, I'll I'll start. Uh, and for me, it was just how truly difficult it is for a person pursuing a PhD to land, um, end up with a tenure track position, um, you know, or even a position within the academy, right? So we, so we often think that a, a PhD will prepare you for the, you know, the, the professoriate, or you might become a director of a unit within a university, but your life, your career is gonna be, um, uh, your full-time career, your full-time employment will be based upon a life within university. and it's about half the people, maybe a little bit, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on the years, uh, that end up in those positions, but the other half do not. Uh, and then for those seeking tenure track positions, it's it's much more bleak. Uh, and I think that is something that, and Noe mentions this in in his summary in his article, uh, in his postings, that you know we need to be more open uh, with prospective students that you know you are not necessarily going to end up in a tenure track position. Uh, I know recently there was. Uh, and a series of, sort of articles and sort of a public fallout around the English department at Columbia University. Uh, and it was the same thing where the department chair in English uh, said something similar, that we need to be much more honest at the level of people coming in to visit as prospective applicants to say, uh, you know, odds are you will not end up in a tenure track position, yeah, but let's talk about the other things that you can do. So that was uh, eye-opening for me. I, I'm, I'm struck too because Something that's reiterated here, but I think it's it's you know it's been sort of circulated is is the um, this idea that we need to be more accepting and less stigmatizing of non-academic positions. And I guess you know I, I've heard that a number of times now, and it always I'm, it always sounds right to me. And and I guess partly I kind of wonder where that stigma is and and where those attitudes are coming from and where they're being perpetuated. I, I don't know that it's it's something that I've encountered directly um, uh, that I necessarily felt in, in my own training, but I also was a pretty naive and unsavvy uh, graduate student. So uh, I don't know that I would have recognized it if it had been there, but, um, and I'm just wondering like, do, do the two of you have a, do either of you have a sense of this or, or I mean, is this something that you've encountered in, 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 in one place or another? And, and what, are the, what are the barriers to changing that? I, I do think I have a sense of what this is. And I don't, I don't, I don't uh, recognize it firsthand from my own experience, things that people have said to me. But at, at WashU, through the Center, the Center for the Humanities, um, we are actually developing some um, alt-ac curriculum, some projects, some new classes. I'm actually going to be teaching a, a 500 level class in embodied communication, which is mm. basically public speaking and professional communication multimodal for humanities PhD students on the idea that it will both prepare scholars and uh, people who uh, find non-faculty jobs. At any rate, we've had discussions about this, and my senses of it is that 
graduate students are afraid that if they acknowledge to their advisors or to their peers that they're thinking about maybe a job in the nonprofit world, they're thinking about maybe a job in, in university administration, that that will mark them in the eyes of their peers and professors as not being motivated, not being serious, mm-hmm. that they'll get less mentorship from their um, committees on their scholarship. And that, to me, is something that makes sense as a kind of psychological dynamic, that if you feel like everybody knows this is very competitive, everybody knows we're not probably all going to end up in tenure-track jobs, I want to be the star. I want to be the person that my advisor is saying to his or her colleagues, this is, you know, this is the, the person who's serious and has the best project, that that will go away as soon as the perception builds that maybe you're not, you don't have your heart set on the academy. That's a, I think that is a real problem because I think a lot of people have good intentions. They know that their graduate students might have rewarding careers elsewhere, but we're so set up to train scholars and focus on research that um, I think that's a real danger. So that's I, th- I think that's a real dynamic. I don't know. Um, the, I mean, I have thoughts about what the barriers are or what, what could be done to fix that. Some alternative curriculum is is good. I think professors, you know, we're, we're the ones training graduate students. We're the ones who got that job, who got the tenured position. And so our perspective is skewed and we lose touch with our friends and colleagues who didn't and doing more communication about that and, and being, as Harvey says, you know, more honest with ourselves about what we're doing when we're training our students. That That's critical as well. Yeah. I had the opportunity to serve as the director of the PhD program in theater and drama at Northwestern University. Uh, and I served in that, in that role for, I don't know, seven years maybe? <laughs> so it was, I think six or seven years, might've been eight. Uh, uh, it, was, it was so much fun, time flew by that quickly, which is why I don't remember exactly how many years I did it. And, but I do remember that um, you know, every year, every year there's a job market and the job market isn't something that just pops up um, like you know, over over the span of one month, it, it consumes like half the year. I mean, you, you're, like, if if it's actively going for you, it's your summer, it's your fall. Results are coming in the spring, and then you know, if things don't quite work out that year, then you're spending the summer again preparing for it. So it's all consuming. But I've I, I've seen um, within that program, and certainly talking with other directors of graduate studies, just how challenging it is, you know, for students. I mean, and and one obstacle is that, as panel noted. Uh, students who want, you know, an alt-ac career, like, usually their director, you know, their chair of their dissertation committee is not the person who is the best advisor for how to pursue that because, you know, one often teaches your own um, and shares your own experience. And so, so that is a limiting factor. But the other thing that I've noticed is that, you know, students sometimes have to think about, you know, are they creating a dissertation that's going to make them employable or more employable? Right. You know, so, you know, does a person have to, in the course of time, demonstrate an interest and in, in, in capacity to direct? Uh, if you're working in the area of the Asia continent, uh, you know, do you pick uh, Japan or China, you know, over Indonesia or over India because you feel as though there'll be more jobs in those areas? And, and those are some um, unfortunate sacrifices that people have made. Um, and then many people who have been con- 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 uh, 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 focused upon their area of study, just found themselves applying for jobs where you know a hiring committee wasn't looking for a person who did what they do or what their interests are. You know, so it's one of those things where it's not the student's fault. Um, it's just one of those things where it's how do you 
focus upon and realize your own potential as a scholar, you know, within this larger backdrop, you know, where, you know, universities have their priorities for what they're looking for. Uh, and then you also have advisors who are what are willing to give it themselves if they feel like they're perpetuating the academy, sort of you know creating a space for someone else like them, but maybe less equipped to be able to mentor students who, whose future will not be at a university or college. You know, listening to you, Harvey, it occurs to me that you know what we're really talking about is a fundamental rethinking of the ecosystem of the university and, and graduate education, because um, certainly we can look at other notable shifts in the past in which the academy recognized, whether willingly and enthusiastically or not, that there were new areas of expertise that were in demand and um, and needed and that did not exist within within the academy. And so through a whole variety of mechanisms, uh, you know, some compelled more than others, the the university like the the academy brought in those new areas of expertise and i i wonder i wonder if there's a way of thinking of thinking through this issue in a more systemic um institutional way of how do we how do we resituate and bring in different areas of expertise because of course the 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 great contradiction is what you've just outlined right? which is that the people in in the institutions, right, are are then suddenly not even so suddenly, but are increasingly tasked with preparing people t- for lives outside the institutions, right? Lives that many of us, you know, uh, did not pursue or pursue vigorously for very long. And and you know, just to kind of bring this around, I mean, I, I don't think this is unique to theater and performance studies. I think this is a, you know, something that that numerous fields are having to kind of reckon with. Although I think that theater and, and performances close proximity to uh, professional fields and industries, you know, makes makes those possible intersections and communications outside our own, you know, academic, right? I mean, it's like, you know, we have professional degrees within our training program often, you know, some programs already have meaningful back and forth between MFA and PhD, not all, but some. And so I just, you know, I guess I'm, I'm curious, and I'll be interested to sort of think through, you know, certainly from my own individual vantage point and institutional context, but but others, how can we, how can we leverage the expertise that we already have within theater and performance programs? in relation to to changing industry, right? Not just changing uh, academia, but but also changing industries and, and where the skills and the talents and ideas of academic theater training writ large might be uh, effectively deployed. And it occurs to me that like digital humanities and digital you know, performance yeah. is certainly one area, but also, you know, presentations and things like that as well. Sorry. Yeah, it's it's interesting. No, it's it's good. I think the the I think these conversations are happening sort of across the humanities departments because a lot of fields are in the same boat and thinking the same ways about graduate education. It's interesting to think about the way that theater and performance studies education itself is distinctive and could actually the way that we would need to do it differently. Like think about the industries and think about the training um, that we're imparting. In certain ways, it's the same. I mean, the 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 part of the job which is 
figuring out how to bring in a, a, a long-term, original, very difficult research project to fruition. A lot of this is transferable across fields, but we also have a lot of contact in project-based um, uh, uh, work like theater production that the other fields don't have. One of the takeaway stats from the article in Theater Topics that I cited was that according to their survey, 59.2% of survey respondents um, reported participating in professional theater production. That's a that's something that can be built upon and can help us identify the industries where these people can go. Um, I don't know. I think I'll, I'll say this one last thing, which is that in terms of obstacles to this, I do think that faculty need to be honest and need to not be disingenuous in thinking about why they want big cohorts and PhD programs and MA programs in their departments. It is partly for our job satisfaction. It's partly because there's uh, labor and um, things that graduate students bring in that we want and don't want to give up. It's partly about our own prestige. Um, so I think personally, I think that the recommendations in, in this article and that Noe makes about facilitating Alt-Ac training um, are absolutely valid. I do think that there has to be some consolidation, you know, reduction of, of cohort size. That's happening, I believe. Training programs are not producing as many PhDs on an annual basis as they were 10 years ago. I think that's, unfortunately, I think that's a, a response that has to happen to, to confront these dynamics, but also that, you know, that you get cohort sizes that are too small. You don't have a critical mass. You don't have the sort of intellectual culture you need to, to really serve the students. That may mean that some programs need to stop training PhD students, though obviously there's a cost that comes with that. There's less research being produced. Um, we're, you know, it's not something that anyone should be happy about, but I believe that that's part of the solution. I also think part of the solution should be increasing the resources that are given to graduate students while they're there so that if they're not forced to go into great debt, if their benefits are good, um, a five-year PhD education experience is less costly than the, the sort of calculus that you're making when you're thinking, okay, I've got this likelihood of ending up as, as a professor, this likelihood of having a career in another field. All of that looks more attractive if the graduate students are supported um, and compensated in, in ways that are adequate to the work that they're doing while they're with us. So I feel like that's another component of this that, that should be emphasized. Yeah, and, and, and just one, one more thing to add. If doctoral programs looked at the average success rate or placement rate, rather, of where students go, you know, and, and, and we're honest, and they said maybe at day one, um, on average, one third of students will end up in a tenure track position who, who are pursuing a PhD. Obviously, we're already quite well equipped to prepare students for that track, you know, but how are we preparing the other two thirds of the students? You know, and I think that you know, actually raising that question early on and making that a priority as opposed to, you know, the workshop that gets offered in year four on alt act careers, like actually, you know, from day one, preparing to give everyone the resources so that they can thrive if they end up in, in if they if they choose or or just by other people's decision making, um, you pursue a path, you know, that's an all that career. Um, and I think that's really important for us to think about. Absolutely. Why don't we move on to our last topic, um, ATHA 
2019. Um, neither Sarah nor I were lucky enough to be able to attend in Orlando, Florida about a month ago. Um, but uh, Harvey Young was there. Um, I don't know about you, Sarah. I, I was hunting around online trying to see what it was like at the conference. I found the, the, the program. You can find the program online and see what all the sessions were and the, and the lovely statements written by the immediate past pre president of ATHA, um, acknowledging, the significant, <laughs> acknowledging the significance of Orlando as a site of research um, in distinctive ways. Um, there's also Patrick McKelvey's piece on Shop Talk um, or, or his piece on publicbooks.org overheard at ATHA, which maybe we'll get a chance to talk about. Um, uh, but Harvey, you were there. Uh, what were people talking about it at ATHA 2019? What do you remember? Uh, it, it, was a trend, it was a fantastic, tremendous, amazing conference. And the highlight for many people was Bill Rausch. You know, Bill Rausch, uh, who uh, uh, you know, at the time was the, in the final few days at the uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival as artistic director, was really talking about his, his legacy uh, and what it means to be an arts maker in this political environment in which uh, people are quick to anger, in which people are, are quick to um, air hate speech, um, uh, in which uh, legacies and efforts uh, and activism toward diversity and inclusion are increasingly being challenged. So he was talking about how his legacy is, is, is trying to be undermined and erased uh, by some conservative elements you know, out west, um, you know, who are wanting to say that to commission artists of color to um, you know, offer reflection of different, different gender experiences uh, is something that should not be done at, at a Shakespeare festival. Uh, and it was powerful uh, and it was a true highlight. So that happened. Uh, we had a reading of After Orlando um, uh, about the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting in terms of engaging um, um, you know, that act of violence, but also remembering those who passed. Uh, and then we've honored people. So Kathy Perkins, who is an extraordinary lighting designer, uh, who's written and edited a number of books about uh, uh, fe featuring plays by black women playwrights, uh, you know, was there uh, receiving a career achievement award. Uh, and Randy Reinholtz, who, who was the founder, who's a director of Native Voices, um, you know, he um, received an award. And just you know, on that day, or actually over those few days, to have Bill and Randy and Kathy and uh, so many others who are talking about the importance of the work that we do. It was inspiring. Yeah, it was, it was a really good conference. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes. Oh, and Josh Chambers Letson, not sorry, uh, won uh, the Best Book Award. Uh, and then Joshua Abrams uh, became uh, the new president of ATHA. So Josh Abrams sort of stood before you know, everyone and talked about his commitment to the work that's happening. And Josh is really interestingly located as a person who's on faculty at Central School in the UK. So he's the first uh -huh. uh, non-US based uh, president of the organization. So I look to see uh, more transatlantic, you know, partnerships occurring under his leadership. Oh, that's an interesting development. Of course, I saw that, that Joshua was, um, became president, but I hadn't thought of that. Of it's, it is the um, well, wait a minute. It's the Association for Theater and Higher Education. It doesn't have American in the title the way that Astor does. Um, but uh, no, he'll be he'll be a great president. That's fantastic. I have to say, you know, so I've been, um, you know, when you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter anyway, and especially during conferences that I that I can't attend, and and I and I, very often, you know, I feel like. Like if I'm kind of following along, you know, I've got a pretty good sense of what's going on and, and, you know, I always miss it. But 
I have to say, this one I really, uh, aside from the heat of Orlando in August, <laughs> because that the the humidity, I think I could still right recall from the last time Atha was down there. Um, but I I really missed this one. I I've, I felt the the distance between you know even as it was being represented, I think it was really clear how what a powerful. Um, in-person shared experience that was this year. So, so kudos to to you and everybody else, Harvey, for for putting together what what sounds to be just a really um, really important conference. I think I think ATH is always timely in in one way, but this one seemed particularly significant this year. Yeah, and the and the program looks great. There's a, just a lot of activity going. I think that the focus group structure is one of the things about ATH that's really great. The um, we, you think about Aster and its distinctive working session way of working, and so I, I, that tends to make me think sometimes that Atha is more of a kind of general big tent, um, you know, uh, conference with a lot of sessions with three talking heads, and perhaps that's true. But um, the working session, uh, or, or pardon me, the um, the focus group structure of it really guarantees that there's ongoing concentrated adaptation to where the areas of research are that are most pressing and that are coming up um, and, and a really sophisticated way of organizing a, a big conference like that. Um, nice, nice. Um, I do have to, we do have to talk about Patrick McKelvey's piece overheard at ATHA. This is, a, I believe, in response, an, an homage, um, not just an imitation, but an homage to um, a similar piece that was that uh, was widely circulated about MLA. Um, I, I recommend that people look at it. You've heard the official uh, rendition of how ATHA went. Um, I don't think that what's in Patrick McKelvey's piece uh, really undercuts that that much, but it does give you snippets <laughs> of the hallway conversations, um, what people say when they're um, uh, debriefing after a, a, a panel. Um, I. What was your I, we'll favorite it, one there, panel? Like, what I, you know, what one do you want to read well, out loud? The the thing is that I was tempted to say we should go through these and then try to guess not who said them, but like, could you guess? Does that sound like a graduate student? Does that sound like a, you know, a full professor? Like, guess the rank or guess the school. I think that's um, as inflammatory an idea as your suggestion of when we were going to cast the entire field in our fantasy, right, academic yeah, department. Yeah, yeah. To, you know. yeah we, we can't do fantasy academic department, and we can't try to identify, like, guess who these individuals are who've said some snarky things. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the poolside music is really lesbian affirming. Who said that? Like, what, what kind of scholar? Are we talking about a, a sort of tenured full professor at a small liberal arts school? Are we talking about uh, a graduate student? Um, this I enjoyed. I enjoyed the n number 15 right above it. Person one says, I almost said something really inappropriate. Person two says, save it for the article. Um, I like that if you can't cite yourself, how are you going to cite anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. Um, uh, number two, we're both angry Marxists who hate everyone. Now I want to know who those people are. I want to know if these are, are younger or more established scholars, as we say. Um, angry Marxists. Um, still still out there. Still going to Atha. Um, I meant service perhaps, to the field, not service to yourself. 
right. Anyways, we'll put the link to this up on the. It's um, it's a good one. Kudos, Patrick. Website. That's uh, yes. The, and the and the, and the the gifs are quite fun, also. Important uh, website. Yes, yep. the, the gifs are great. Um, why don't we move into our drafts? Uh, drafts. Regular listeners to On Tap will know our 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 musings, our our speculative, projective ideas, our responses to our professional life that don't fit perhaps into other categories. Um, um, Harvey, why don't you why don't you lead us off this time with your draft, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I recently saw two productions of Little Shop of Horrors, um, and. I don't know. Actually, I know why. Because one was in a was a Boston theater, the other one's in a Providence theater, and my goal is to support um, all theater. And they just happened to be sort of staging Little Shop of Horrors. And the second production, the one that occurred in Boston, there was a protester. Uh, and at first, uh, a, a I don't know, um, you know, a twenty twenty-ish um, uh, aged woman sort of walked across the stage, and I thought, wow. I guess Boston audiences are just kind of rude. <laughs> you know, I did, I did, I did not know it was a protest. And then, um, you know, shortly before, you know, Audrey sacrificed herself uh, to to the plant. Uh, you know, the person stood up and was just like, uh, "Terrible show! Terrible show! Uh, women need, women deserve better." Uh, and. <laughs> Uh, oh security God. came in, escorted her out, and theater security is such that like they're not really used to like people <laughs> needing to be forcibly sort of removed, you know. So it's like uh, it was it was it was its own drama, um, you know. But I I began to think about um, you know obviously when I first saw the uh, Little Shop of Horrors uh, the, the first production I was like wow this is totally um, a, a terrible story about like you know the, the abuse of a woman, uh, and I thought about that and I felt bad for taking my son to it. Um, you know, but then in the second one, I start to think, well, how do we determine, you know, which pieces to protest? And, and that's really what I've been thinking about as a draft, you know, that uh, like when these pieces re-air themselves, you know, with, you know, um, um, horrific um, or stereotypical uh, aspects to it, taming the shrew, whatever, um, you know, um, like where do we put our activism? Where do we put our, um, our, uh, our voice? Uh, and, 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 that's, and it just made me think of that, because going into it, I never would have thought that someone would have protested Little Shop of Horrors, uh, yeah. but then I witnessed it. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's, we could go on and on about this topic, because yeah, we did uh, Rocky, Horror, Rocky Horror, the musical, last year. And I think there's a, you know, it's, a, it's a musical from a very different time and different sort of expectations, and there's some stuff in there that you could argue ought to be revised or changed or dropped. But... It wasn't protested, but Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, it make my my initial question was: Is the person actually protesting the content of the show? Would she protest any production of Little Shop of Horrors, or was there something about this production? But it was about the representation of abusive women in the show. Well, I maybe we should leave it there. I, you, um, you know, as I'm thinking, I'm like, oh man, there's actually a couple of different ways to get into into Little Shop of Horrors, right? Because there's also the kind of racial coding of the plant in the you know, in the in the in the in the lyrics, but also in the, you know, in the the way that that's composed, right? The tones, right? And the the, totally the right. slang of it, right? And the fact that it's like conveyed, I mean, it's essentially like uh, you know, skid row as a as a context right um and and what you know the 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 sort of you know the jewishness of the of the shop and and then the invasion right of the alien you know black plant um 
you know, who's like I, totally written. I mean, there's a whole racial representation. Oh, absolutely. In in Little Shop, that is absolutely like super problematic. Oh my god, I didn't even, I had not even realized that. Yeah. You're blowing my mind. Oh no, it's it's true, it's true because that, because that flower shop, uh, you know, the, the idea is that it was once a nice flower shop in a respectable neighborhood, but then the neighborhood changed, right? And and the, the neighborhood change means that people of color moved yeah. uh, in. Oh my God. As we evidenced by the opening doo-wop, right? Like <laughs> yes, the sort of absolutely. the doo-wop chorus, right? Who sort of explains and situates us like in the, in the sort of neighborhood and that it will be saved by this plant. But in fact, the plant is, you know, is inherently evil and blood-sucking. And, you know, I mean, it's oh like, you know, it's like, it's practically the Lion King. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we got to we got to go out and shut down some productions of Little Shop of Horrors. This is amazing. Uh, thank you, Harvey, for that for that draft. Um, uh, let me jump in quickly, and then I'll uh, throw to Sarah. Um, my draft, and this is going back uh, deep into um, you know earlier in 2019, but in June I got to go to the retirement celebration for Jeff Prohl, Professor Jeff Prohl at the University of Puget Sound. Um, uh, author of multiple books about dramaturgy. Um, uh, a, a really important mentor to me when I was an undergraduate student. I absolutely, my work in his classes and the productions that he directed set me on this career path more than any other experience I had in my life. Um, he's a major figure in, in professional dramaturgy, both the sort of professional theater and, and sort of practical areas of that and the academic areas of that and an important bridge between, um, I would say, academic theater uh, um professionals and professional dramaturgs. Um, and he retired and um, it was a wonderful celebration. Sarah Freeman organized it, Jess Smith um, and Kurt Walls, who are, who are um, faculty in that department, organized a great evening or an afternoon celebration with scenes from plays that he had directed. I got to reprise my role of, of uh, Treplia from the, from the Seagull, a role that I played when I was a college sophomore and I got to do three minutes of it on the same stage, um, which was a very special experience for me. And, and one of many different scenes and presentations that was in that um, afternoon. So it got me thinking about, obviously, a lot of things in my own life and, and career trajectory, but I really just wanted to mention it to honor Jeff, who has made an immense contribution to, to our field and to dramaturgy and to the lives of a lot of students um, over the decades of his career. That's so nice, panel. Congratulations. It was, a, well, I, I should not be congratulating No, but, but I, I mean, was like, how nice I that you got to do to... that and, and, and good that you did that. I mean, like, you know, the opportunities yes, yes. to honor people, you know, who are important to us are really, are really good. It was a, it was a special experience for me, too. Uh, Sarah, what do you have? Uh, so um, as part of my new gig, I take the subway every day, um, which is kind of delightful. Um, but it also means that I've had a lot of opportunity to explore new podcasts and, um, and, and new listening. And I have... Um, uh, found one um, that I want to recommend to everyone, which is um, Anthem Homunculus, which is a new pod podcast-based musical by John Cameron Mitchell um, and Brian Weller. Um, cool. And this is a, the conceit is that there is a young man who's been diagnosed with um, a, a brain tumor, and he is creating a podcast to um, basically you know, a telethon to fund his his treatment. Um, so it's a rather dark topic, but of course, in the hands of John Cameron Mitchell, uh, it it is just treated with unbelievable fun and irony, uh, and and is a great listen. Uh, Glenn Close is on it. Patty Lapone um, participates on it. I think there are ten episodes right now. Um, I've listened to the first the first few, but 
But just to kind of, you know, whet your appetite for this, um, in the in the opening episode, the kind of key I want song is John Cameron Mitchell, um, or the character of um, Keon McKay, uh, singing to his tumor and his tumor singing back in a kind of <laughs> monologue duet, um, which includes wonderful lines like, um, I'll be with you when you die. <laughs> and wow. it's just, I mean, I am kind of just like totally um, all over it. So I, I really recommend it. It's on the um, on the Luminary uh, platform, which means sadly that, you know, I think the first two episodes are free and then you have to pay for it. Um, uh, I have found it incredibly worth the cost to 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 you know subscribe to future episodes and and so anyway I, I share that for what it's worth. Thank you, Sarah. Um, that is all we've got today on the podcast. Sarah Harvey, such a pleasure to get to talk to you as always. Um, listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll have another podcast for you in about a month. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.